beginning. All right, welcome to the Grief Dreams podcast. My name is Sean Ram alongside Joshua Black. Hi, everyone. Thank you for listening again and supporting our guests and hearing their stories. We have with us today Dr. Malvina Skorska. Uh, she rece- recently received her PhD in psychology from Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario. The focus of her research is on the development of sexual orientation with a focus on more biological explanations. She is currently continuing this work in a postdoctorate fellowship at Brock University with Dr. Anthony Bogart. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for I'm coming excited. on. I'm excited to be here. That's good. I'm glad you're excited because we're excited to have you on. And I got to say, what's it like to receive your PhD? Oh, it feels fantastic. Mostly because all of the four years or how many years of work are done and you've kind of gotten to this point where like there's some closure there almost. You're not just like still wondering what it would be like. So it feels pretty good. And it feels like you can kind of move on with your life a little bit. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah, because like we met when I first started Brock. And so I still got, what, a year and a bit, a year and a half maybe, till I get to sort of feel what it feels like to have closure. <laughs> yeah. No, it's but, great. Yeah. And what was, like the, what was the ceremony like? Um, The ceremony was super exciting. I thought it was exciting. A lot of people don't like convocation ceremonies, which is something that I found out uh, by inviting some people to come to my convocation ceremony. <laughs> and they didn't want to come because they think it's boring. Um, but f- when you're doing the PhD, it's pretty exciting because like, I got my supervisor to hood me because you get hooded, right? You get your hood put on as part of the convocation ceremony. And then I got to sit on the stage with the rest of the faculty members that are present at the ceremony, which is really cool. It's different than when you uh, when you finish your master's or your undergrad and you kind of you get the hood and um, but then you go back to sit down and you don't really get a choice who gets to hood you. But because you have reached kind of this level in your career and in your academic achievements, you get like the special treatment, which I thought was very special, and it was very nice. And you also get different regalia. So at Brock, I think the undergrads wear dark blue uh, gowns, and the PhDs wear black gowns, and they have this funky hat that looks like a pillow. It's pretty cool. So um, I thought I really enjoyed it, and I thought it was a great way to celebrate that accomplishment too. No, that's great to hear, you know, and, uh, you know, I think it's one of those things like uh, rituals are important and this is a ritual for you to kind of move on to the next step, but at the same time, celebrate what you've accomplished. Uh, Did you do anything after that? Did you have like a dinner or lunch or something like that? Yeah, I had a dinner um, with some, with my family and some friends. And I also, I celebrated by going to Florida for a trip on my own. And that was actually before the convocation, but after I had finished the PhD as kind of just a gift to myself and also a time to relax and unwind a little bit after all of the excitement of finishing everything kind of had gone down. So I did that to kind of celebrate and then, yeah, had dinner and get-togethers and it was a lot of fun. So was the trip relaxing? What'd you do? It was pretty relaxing. I actually went to uh, the Wizarding World of Harry Potter at Universal Studios and to Disneyland, or 
I think it, no, it's Disney World. Disneyland is in California. It's Disney World in Florida. I'd never been to those places. Uh, my parents didn't have a lot of money growing up, so they never really took us on um, really expensive vacations, and I'd always wanted to go. Um, I grew up watching Disney movies like a lot of other kids, and a lot of other of my friends or kids at school always got to go to Disney uh, World. And so I really wanted to go and just experience it and have some fun, uh, meet like some of the characters and go on some of the rides. And so that's what I did. And I spent some time at the beach, although at the, t- at the time that I was there, they had a tropical storm. So the beach wasn't that much fun. We couldn't like nobody could go swimming. Uh, you could still kind of walk. And there were Uh, flood warnings as well so it wasn't the greatest time to go but I had fun nonetheless and I had probably the most fun because I was the first time in a long time that I took a trip where I didn't bring any work with me or I didn't bring my laptop with me a lot of my trips in previous years had been um, like conferences so I would go to the conference and then spend a couple extra days wherever I was kind of exploring the area And this time it was just purely for fun. So I think I really enjoyed that part of it the most. Yeah, that's the thing with, uh, I think a lot of people that aren't in academia don't realize is that you're carrying this with you everywhere you go. So it's not like a nine to five job. It's like you're always something to do and something to work on until you get hooded, right? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, and even beyond that, (laughs) if you decide to stay in academics. Yeah, no, for sure. I think that one of the, most challenging parts of academics and even completing your PhD is that you have to be really self-motivated and self-driven to achieve it and to finish it. There isn't really, nobody really cares that you're doing this except for yourself and maybe your supervisor. But at the end of the day, if you don't motivate yourself um, and inspire yourself to kind of do the work, then it's not going to get done or it's going to take a little bit longer for you to finish it that's so cool to hear and to hear you talk about that you know and i hope you really carry that with you in your career moving forward and what i mean by that is i hope you carry the aspect of having fun as well taking care of yourself and doing the things that you want to do and you know it seems like you understand that concept of like you know giving back to yourself yeah, it's, you know, it's not been easy. I don't find it easy all the time to do, but there definitely has to be this kind of balance between working and taking care of yourself and also doing things for yourself that are independent of your job. A lot of academics are really passionate about what they do, and so they spend a ton of time working, and probably more so than the standard 40 hours a week. But I think it is really important to take some time away from the work life, even though you're really passionate and really motivated. About, so it almost doesn't even seem like a job to you. It just seems like it's fun and you're doing something cool. That to, to, like, to do things outside of work and to just enjoy yourself and enjoy life. So that's been one of the things that I've really learned throughout my work um, as a graduate student. Yeah, I think that applies, you know, to everyone. I think we get so bogged down with like doing tasks and chores and, you know, meeting different people. We forget like to have fun and to play. And I think that's what, you know, Disney World is all about is about playing, right? Like you're in this like magical kingdom and how can you not just like act like a little kid? So my question to you is what's your favorite Disney movie? 
Oh, that's such a good question. I had so many favorite Disney movies when I was growing up. I probably, okay, I think I think it's Beauty and the Beast. I really do like that. Although I don't agree with all of the themes in that movie necessarily. I do love the character Belle. Um, like she's a pretty huge bookworm and she kind of just does what she wants and isn't just going to go f- be with some guy because he's the most handsome person in the village. <laughs> like I kind of like those themes in that. So I think that's probably my favorite uh, Disney movie. But I have others that I loved when I was little too. Like I love The Lion King and Pocahontas and uh, Aladdin. I loved all those movies. They're all great. Nice. Did you hear there's a new Beauty and the Beast coming out soon? I did hear about that, and I'm I'm so excited to go see it. I think it'll be great. All right. So now that we like, we chat a little bit, let's get back to sort of just you know what we asked our, our guests is their journey through life. And so since you um, looked at sexual orientation for I'm guessing majority of your academic career, what got you into that field? Was it right from your undergrad, or did it only start when you went to grad school? a really great question. I think in hindsight, I can make up a story about how I really, really like this field from undergrad. But I think, I think there's things about it that I, that I learned about an undergrad that made me like it even more once I got into the work. I was really drawn to human sexuality work in general. And when I applied to go to graduate school, I really focused on Um, human sexuality work, and also history of psychology, which is kind of funny. But I liked both of those areas. So I kind of applied to uh, work in both of those areas. And then I ultimately ended up choosing human sexuality. And I got into the program at Brock with with, uh, Dr. Bogart as my supervisor. And I was always intrigued by sexual orientation um, because a lot of the theories about how it develops were rooted in sexual differentiation, so differences between the sexes and, for example, hormones. So uh, gay guys are supposedly exposed to more testosterone as they're developing in the fetus, and that's partly uh, what makes them gay. Well, I also knew that when I was taking uh, classes on hormones in undergrad, that like your gender and doesn't really, um, is really more complex than just, you know, the sex that you're assigned at birth. And I thought that was fascinating. And given that gender is a huge part of a lot of the theories of how sexual orientation develops, I was really intrigued with this idea of the complexity of gender and how that can be used or how that's associated with the development of different sexual orientations, if that makes any sense. So I, I still am fascinated by it to, this, to the same extent these days. And a lot of it's driven because I really, really like understanding how things operate within bodies. So I really like understanding how the hormone system works and how the brain works and how they work together um, to produce various behaviors. But I also like understanding things about myself. So why am I straight, for example, or why am I a heterosexual person? Nobody really answers those questions, right? That doesn't seem to be a question that a lot of uh, people ask. Um, but I'm really fascinated by that. Like, why did, why do I have this 
orientation toward a certain sex um, and other people have a different orientation toward another sex. And why does it seem like it just seems like this innate part of who I am instead of something that I thought about and spent a lot of time thinking about and then actively choosing? seems to be a common experience for a lot of people. So I was fascinated by that and how that might be related to how we develop. Yeah, that's very interesting. And you're right. Like I, I've never questioned that either, right? How it develops. And the body is such a mysterious thing. So what factors have you found that influence human sexual orientation? Well, a lot of the theories are about um, factors that are occurring on a prenatal level and so, and a lot of factors that are happening within the womb. So we can't actually study a lot of those factors. The ethics surrounding those kind of studies would be just astronomical, right? <laughs> so um, we look at them indirectly. And one of the ways we do that is by looking at, for example, correlates or physical development markers or biological markers of development that are known to be kind of influenced by certain processes while people are developing. And we look to see whether gay and heterosexual men and then lesbian and heterosexual women differ on these markers. So for example, part of my work, I've looked at facial structure to see if there's facial structure differences between gay men and straight men and lesbian women and straight women. But I've also looked at more of an immunological, immunologically based explanations for sexual orientation. So for example, these have to do with birth weight and fetal loss or miscarriage uh, in mothers of uh, gay men with various sibling compositions and also doing some work looking at the fraternal birth order effect, which is the effect that gay men tend to have tend to have more older brothers than heterosexual men, and specifically looking at an immune explanation for that finding, where uh, we're looking at cross-sectional data to see if we can find um, an increased response to a certain protein that we're interested in, a couple of proteins that we're interested in, in mothers of gay men who have had older brothers versus mothers of heterosexual men and things like that. So yeah, we found um, evidence for the association of facial structure and facial structure is it's a pretty complex variable. So it's, you know, it's influenced by several different things, including genetics and hormones. And so we think that this kind of tells us a little bit about the development of sexual orientation, although we can't really measure that developmental process or that process of how the face develops in our cross-sectional data, right? So we can only kind of infer based on what's in the existing literature and what we know about how facial structure develops, what's going on in gay men and lesbian women, and also in heterosexual individuals. Wow, that's, that's a really lot. Yes, that's a lot of a lot of information, but that's amazing. Like you're in that field, and you're I think you're giving a lot of the listeners um, something to think about with like the data and the what you just shared. And so I know you're a big fan of uh, the evolutionary sort of role in all this. And how would you tie that into sort of human sexuality? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I'm currently teaching evolutionary psychology at Brock, so that's pretty relevant. And I actually just gave a lecture on the evolution of same-sex attraction. All right, so keep so... it less than two hours. <laughs> yeah, I won't give you the full lecture. 
But basically, like a lot of the stuff that uh, we're investigating in terms of how sexual orientation develops can kind of give us an understanding of a biological basis, more so somewhat of a genetic basis for those in individuals investigating genes or um, twin studies. So those are kind of what we call proximate mechanisms. So we're looking at how sexual orientation develops in people currently. And there's other individuals who are looking at ultimate mechanisms or what are called ultimate mechanisms. And those are kind of the more of the evolutionary picture of why um, we have different sexual orientations. And the two are not conflicting. You actually need kind of a proximate basis to get at an ultimate basis and vice versa. But basically, when it comes to an ultimate um, understanding or an evolutionary approach to understanding sexual orientation, we're kind of looking to see why any kind of genetics related to sexual orientation would be maintained in the population, given that like, gay men and lesbian women don't reproduce as much, if at all, uh, compared to heterosexual individuals. You would think that if that's the case, that any kind of genes associated with non-heterosexuality would have been kind of weeded out based on uh, natural selection processes because they don't, they wouldn't be reproduced onwards in future generations. So it's kind of a puzzle and it's called an evolutionary paradox as to why sexual orientation would be maintained in, and genes for it would be maintained within the population. Some of the existing literature supports that maybe gay men um, helped their nieces and nephews more when humans were evolving. And there's some support for this based on studies that have been conducted in Samoa, which is an island in the South Pacific. And basically, they found that individuals there who are, they're called fafafine, they are like a third gender. They, are, they have an exclusive attraction to men and are genetic ma uh, males. They invest a lot in their nieces and nephews and more compared to heteros uh, heterosexual men in Samoa. And so we, one of the reasons why scientists think that sexual orientation has been maintained within the population is because they kind of pass on their genes indirectly by helping their nieces and nephew or helping their genetically related kin. That's one of the explanations. There's another one based on female fertility. I won't go into it right now, but you know, the, your listeners should know that there are other explanations, and they might not be mutually exclusive. The field is in kind of an early stage of research regarding this, so we don't know a lot of the answers right now. That's incredible, you know, to see how, uh, you know, in historical context, gay men or women have played a role in society. And I think the work you're doing is important in that helping individuals understand, you know, uh, and that's the ultimate, like you, like you said before, you know, helping to understand your own, why am I hetero? Why am I this? You know, and then expo expounding on that to kind of do research and helping society at large. So that that's pretty amazing. Yeah, thank you. I really enjoy doing the research as well. In general, I think that your, our identities and who we are and why we are the way we are is important for our well-being. So yeah, I agree that any kind of research in general that's looking at understanding why we are the way we are is very helpful to human society in general. So uh, you know, what are actually some of 
the societal impacts? Like, how would you, how would you like to take your work, and how would you like to see it used or like kind of uh, understood in society? Oh wow, that's an interesting question. I would like it to be used to kind of support this idea that understanding who we are is very important to us. And a popular way to phrase my the work that I do specifically is that if there's, you know, if there's a biological basis to sexual orientation, then it must mean that it's right in some way. And I I tend not to I mean, there is definitely an evidence of a biological basis, but I don't want people to use that as the reason for accepting sexual orientation and thinking that that, you know, if there's a biological basis to anything, then it could be considered to be right because there's biological bases to things that we would consider to be immoral. So to me, that is not a very logical argument. But I think that different sexual orientations understanding why they exist could help with just understanding why there's variability in people and why some people are this way and why others are that way and understanding that and reflecting on it in terms of our own who we are individually and then who other people could be I think is very important and so I think I would like my work to be seen in that light and not necessarily in the oh, we have more biological evidence for sexual orientation light. I really like this idea of people understanding who they are as something meaningful to them in general, regardless of whether or not that's rooted in biology. Wow, that's beautiful. So you really you are raising awareness in your own way, and I thank you for coming on the podcast and talking about this some more because I think a lot of people don't know. And like I said, like I didn't know much about this until we met in at Brock University. So hopefully it can raise awareness of human sexuality and allow people to just you know, sit with other people's sexual orientation and not judge it, right? And just say, oh, interesting. There's probably many factors, right? Nurture nature, um, but to allow them to be who they are and what they choose to continue to be. So Melvina, so now at uh, this type of podcast, we want to sort of ask you about loss uh, on your journey so far. And so have you experienced any loss uh, throughout your years? Yeah, you know, loss is a very interesting thing to talk about because I feel like a lot of people focus on loss in terms of death. And definitely, I think that's a very important way to think of loss. But I like to think about it in a different way as well. I personally, over the past several years of my life, haven't experienced a lot of loss in the form of death, apart from our family pet who passed away while I think it was like in the middle of my PhD years. And that was actually a pretty hard loss for me, and it still is sometimes pretty hard to think about. But I also like to think about losses in terms of things about ourselves that are important to us. So for me, for example, uh, loss is, I sometimes feel great loss when, for example, the friendship ends or it doesn't end in a certain, in a nice way or positive way. But also I look at loss in terms of loss of function when I have an injury for, like, I love running. So if I have any kind of injury that prevents me from running, I kind of process that as a loss. And I do, I feel like I have to have a grieving process to go 
that I go through in order to get through that loss because it's such a huge important part of me and important part of who I am that when I can't do it, it's, it's like it's just a huge loss to me. But it's, it's a little bit, I feel like it's a little bit different than, for example, losing our family pet or um, if I had ever lost a family member or if I had lost a friend through, for example, death. I think those are kind of, I would categorize them as different losses, although I think in all the losses that I'm talking about, there is kind of a grieving process that occurs. And especially for me, at least, I feel like that's what happens. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And so anytime we uh, there's a separation of something or a change, we can we can grieve that and we should grieve that, like grieving the loss of being a student, right? Like <laughs> as much as it's exciting, you also have to transform your identity. And so there's a loss there. Um, that's true. Yeah, I never I never really thought about it because... <laughs> Uh, but you mean, it's true. You haven't, you, you, haven't, you haven't grieved the loss yet? <laughs> I guess not. I guess I was happy to not be a student, so I didn't really, I didn't really associate it with a with it being. I think I was ready. Maybe I was processing it for like the past year because I knew it was inevitable. It's not like one of those losses that kind of springs up on you. You have time to kind of prepare yourself for it. So you're like, okay, I'm no longer going to be a student. But then there's always that part of a loss that. As much as you prepare for it, there's things associated with it that you probably can't prepare for. Things like, oh my gosh, I'm not a student anymore, so I have to do all these, I don't know, real world things where, you know, now it's just working. I don't have a thesis that I'm working toward. It's literally just my career now, like this kind of almost abstract type thing, whereas a degree is very almost like tangible, right? Mm-hmm. And that's understandable. And I think too, because you're probably a postdoc, you're probably the grieving period hasn't come yet because you're still doing research. So the part of your identity is still being sort of, um, I guess, worked worked on right now that you've had prior because collecting the data, doing all that sort of stuff. Um, and we'll see after your postdoc ends, you know, like maybe something comes up up then. So let's get back to your dog since this is about grief um, when it comes to the loss of an animal or, or, or a human. So tell us a little bit about your, your dog and what was that process like of finding finding out that he was dying or did you just find out that he died very suddenly? Well, he was pretty, he was sick for a couple months before my parents had to put him down. And it was really weird because like as a scientist, I sat there and I looked at his behavior and it just didn't make sense to me. So he's just, he stopped eating um, his food. And this is a dog that would like eat anything, like would go through purses if he could to get food, if he smelled it. Like he loved eating almost to the point where he would probably overeat if he could. And um, so when he stopped eating, when I was watching him when my parents were away on vacation he stopped eating and I thought it was really, really weird. I'm like, this dog loves to eat. So not characteristic of him. So I told my parents and when they came back from vacation, they took him to the vet and the vet was, you know, just, oh, it might be the food. I thought maybe it had something to do with his teeth because he was eating his wet food, but not his dry food. And um, anyway, so they took him to the vet, and the vet's like, oh, it might just be the type of food. It might be upsetting his stomach. So they changed the food, and things went okay. But then he stopped eating again. And so they went back to the vet, and they didn't really know. And I think they changed the food a couple of times before 
they eventually went back to a different vet and one of them noticed that his stomach was really hard. I said, oh, it, it got to the point where like he would, he stopped eating and he couldn't stand anymore because he had like no energy, right, to stand or go to the bathroom or anything like that. Like he was just so, the vet noticed that his stomach was really hard and rigid. And I guess that they did an x-ray or some kind of a test and they found out that he had cancer somewhere in, I think, in his stomach. And that was affecting his eating abilities. And at that point in time, I think the cancer was too too much or too big to operate. So the only thing they could do was just to put him down. So they did. And while I knew he was sick, there was this part of me that was really, really, like, almost shocked when I heard that he had to be put down. Like, I wasn't prepared for that. I was like, no, we still have to figure it out. And then, you know, like in humans, you can go through chemo. And you can do all of these other things that can help, potentially, not in all cases, obviously, but potentially help. And there was not this period with Max, right? Like, it was just like we had to put him down, and so we put him down. And it was just, like, so shocking to to hear that, like, he would just be gone. And it wasn't, like, you know, so it was just, um, and then from then it was just processing, like, this, like wow this guy had this little guy who had an like a huge impact on all of our lives like my mom and I were like a disaster we were so upset we were so sad and even to this day I think he passed away like two years ago now to this day like I you could probably hear it in my voice a little bit I'm you know it's um it's a little it's still upsetting for me to talk about it and uh I still feel like when I'm thinking about going to my parents' house, I have this reaction where I'm like, oh, I'll get to see Max again. And then I have to like filter down and tell myself that it's not possible because he's passed away. And you kind of go through stages of that throughout the years where it gets easier to do that. But it still happens. Like I'm still expecting sometimes, like my automatic reaction is just to expect him to be at the front step waiting for me. that's kind of, I guess, how it happened. And um, the grieving process was pretty slow at first and it was hard. And, but I'm a lot like definitely okay with it, but it's still hard sometimes to this day. And you see friends with pets and you're like, oh, I I miss Max and things like that. And then I would have dreams about him that would bring up memories again. So yeah. Wow. It it seems like like when you look at, you know, human loss and even with pet loss, there's the the big distinction for uh for most of the time is that with, with pet loss, you have a choice of putting them down. And you're talking about that. Did you have a um a say in if he should be put down or not? No, in my case, no, because I think every everything was so far advanced that it would just be cruel to keep him alive. Um, there was no way that he would survive any surgeries. Like, I don't, I don't even know if chemo for pets is possible. And he was 14 years old. So he was, you know, with age, get your, it, your body takes a beating uh, whenever you do anything like chemo and things like that. So I think it was just like my parents thought it was the best course of action for him so that he's not suffering. And so they kind of just did it without telling my brother or I until after it had been done. <laughs> and, 
yeah, so it was kind of just like, yeah, I don't feel like there was any kind of choice. Like, it just kind of happened. Uh, whereas, the pro- like, sometimes, although it's not always the case, sometimes with humans, like, you have, like, these early signs where you're like, wow, this is really hurting me. You can go get it checked out and, you know, but. You know, and, and it's amazing and I it's a great celebration that, you know, he was able to live uh, quite a life. 14 years is pretty old for a dog. And, you know, I'm sorry for your loss for sure. Um, you know, for a lot of listeners uh, that that are a lot of our listeners, you know, a lot of people have pets and uh, you know, I think understanding uh, for people who don't have pets, understanding that you build a very similar bond uh, and love and affection for your, you know, pet, your dog, your cat, what have you, that you do with a human. And, you know, loss is uh, obviously very similar to a human and grieving process as well. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. But I would even say there's this really huge true element of unconditional love when it comes to a pet, especially a dog. Like most dogs won't do anything to upset you. And if you yell at them, or, you know, punish them in any way, they won't do it again. They learn, like, pretty fast. So there's this kind of, like, almost bond between you where they're always just trying to please you, right? And so it kind of sets up this, like, unconditional love kind of feeling between you and your pet. And I spent a lot of time reflecting on that. Like, why did, why was I so attached to um, my dog? And why was he so special to me? Well, it was because he was always there, no matter what. Like, didn't judge me, didn't do anything. If I wanted to cuddle, if I had a bad day, he wouldn't, like, be snippy at me. He wouldn't, you know, do anything. He was just always there and always happy to see me. Like, beyond happy to see me, no matter what the circumstance. So I think, like, it kind of really cemented in me, like, how almost like that that pure the purity of that bond or that love was between the pet and the person which i think and i think it's pretty powerful i also think it's a really good source of comfort and well-being for a lot of people it makes sense to me yeah and you know like as you're saying i think it's something to do with like pets they don't take you for granted in a way. Like when they see you, it's like they're seeing you for the first time. But when it comes to like humans, we take each other for granted a lot. I know I do. And I expect them to be there when I call. I, I just expect them to, you know, to come up. Like when I saw Sean today, he came up to me. I didn't like get super excited and like it was the first time or the last time I'll see him, you know, like it was ouch. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I just expect that like the meeting with with them, we'll, we'll we'll see each other again tomorrow and the next day and next day. So I think there's a beauty in animals and they really live in that moment and they they don't take the moment for granted, I guess. And that's what you see, right? They don't judge you. They just want to hang out. They just want to sort of love. And you know that's a great message for I think us as as humans to try to achieve in the sense of learning to love like a pet loves. Yeah, I think so too. It's I think it's a really good uh, message, and it's also yeah a good learning opportunity for what it's like to feel those kind of things. And I think then it gives us indications for how maybe we should treat other people in our lives. So yeah, I agree with you there, and especially when it comes to taking other people for granted, like it. Yeah, seems to be come up in a lot of relationships, right, where you end up. Um, seeing the person 
get annoyed with their quirks after being around them for so many years or so many this that um, you kind of just take them for granted and that's unfortunate. And so we haven't talked about Max's breed. So what breed was he? Max was a Maltese. He was a little, my dad called him a toy dog. <laughs> He's a little tiny one, uh, very that's... yappy. <laughs> so what, what color was he? He's Describe him for us. Um, he, so he's all white and he had hair. My mom doesn't like shed, uh, shedding dogs. So uh, my brother actually had a friend in elementary school. And his friend's parents bred Maltese's. Because they had a mom and a dad and they bred these mal- pure Maltese puppies. And so we ended up getting one of them. And the only reason why we got him is because he didn't shed because my mom can't stand shedding and hair everywhere. And so he had to have like regular haircuts because his hair would grow just like a regular human's. And a lot of Maltese, like you see a lot of Maltese's in like the dog shows and they have the long hair because they're really known for their long hair and coats and things like that. So yeah, he's just a tiny white dog. He's so cute. Did you have like a little game you used to play with them? That was like your own thing? Well, actually, I taught him a lot of stuff. <laughs> Probably not surprisingly, because I'm a scientist and I'm interested in behavior. <laughs> but I taught him how to like go up and down the stairs because he had no idea how to do that. I taught him how to sit. I taught him how to roll over and how to give me his paw, shake a paw. And uh, my parents were always amused by this, but I just kind of use like general learning principles and conditioning principles that you see that you learn about in psychology to teach him all that stuff. So that was a lot of fun. So I enjoyed that. He really liked playing fetch. Like that was his favorite thing ever. Just loved chasing after the ball and bringing it back to you. And so I really enjoyed doing that with him is playing fetch with him. And we would give him like all kinds of teddy bears and he he like paid no attention to it to them so eventually we didn't even bother getting him teddy bears anymore we would just get him bouncy balls that he would love to just run after all the time that's funny i always see dogs uh like playing fetch sean do you play fresh with rumble at all yeah i play fetch with them you know he's uh they say you can't play fetch with bulldogs he's an old english bulldogs because they just don't want to give it back and it's sort of true so but hopefully i can condition him maybe with your help i can train <laughs> him he's a, he's a little bit over a year and a half to kind of give it back but he loves it so i i carry two balls with me like two tennis balls so oh. i'll throw one he'll go chase it and then i'll throw the other one in opposite direction and he'll go chase that so that's the only way we play right now <laughs> <laughs> that's adorable yeah, I don't know how you, well, I guess you could use treats to try to get him, like, to reinforce giving you uh, the ball back to you. Yeah, let, yeah, we'll have to talk offline and figure out uh, a game plan for me. It's, it's a tricky one. I also can't get him to stop uh, playing. Like, like he doesn't know when playtime's over. <laughs> like, no, it doesn't really work right now. So he just chases me around with his toy. That tends you, to happen uh, when they're younger too, right? They have all this yeah. energy that they're like they're still like in a puppy stage, right? Where Max was like that too. He wanted to play all the time when he was younger, and then as he got older, he would be like, "Okay, I want to play right now." And he'd come and play for a bit, and then he'd be like, "Yeah, I'm done." And then just like go and rest somewhere and like wouldn't bug you about it. <laughs> Yeah, it's amazing to see. Um, speaking of play, do you? What are some of the dreams that you've uh, experienced uh, with Max? 
a lot of my dreams have been very positive because I like to think of uh, him having had a really, really good long life. And so um, my dreams of him are just running in the grass. He'd love to run in general and like run in the grass. Um, and because he's white, the contrast against the green grass was always awesome to see. We have a lot of pictures of him in the grass because it's just so funny and seeing this white like blob in the amongst the green grass. So I just have pictures of him like with running or sorry dreams of him running in in parks or in fields of grass and he's just happy as can be. Those have been my dreams of him and they just remind me that he had a really 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 good life, really long life, and he ran as much as he could anytime he was able to. <laughs> so it really makes me feel really good whenever I have those dreams with him. Yeah, I'm glad you're having such positive dreams. Is it like in a park that you guys used to play at or is like just you don't really know where, where he is when he's running? Yeah, you know what? I haven't noticed. I feel like when I'm in my dream, I'm just so happy that he's happy <laughs> that I don't even pay attention to where it is. He's just running around in a green field and um like with this like with his tongue hanging out like pretty vivid and his ears flapping and and like his tail kind of wagging so yeah that's kind of what the there's no specific place it's just him running around in a green field and just super super excited and happy wow and does he notice you at all hmm, that's a good question i don't think so I don't have myself in the dream either. It's kind of just like, almost like me looking down on him, if that makes any sense. Almost like a being a fly on the wall within like his happiness. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I've heard dreams like that. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what I remember it as, is like me just kind of looking in and seeing him just super happy and running around endlessly in what I would consider to be one of his happy places. That's really cool. Yeah, because like you see sometimes the deceased will like come to the dreamer, but this is like the dreamer is going to the deceased, like you're off in the distance sort of thing watching. I think that's very interesting. And so if you could today um, make up a dream or what dream would you want of Max? That's a good question. You've never asked me that question before. Um, oh, I got I save it for the podcast. <laughs> that makes sense. I actually I don't know if I would ask for any dreams. As I guess just I would love for them to just remind me of all of the positive things and how happy he is. Yeah, so let's narrow that down to you know like. Would there be like a moment that you want to sort of replay in life? Would you want Max to talk to you? You know, like there's, it's a dream world, right? So anything is possible. No, I think I'm like, I'm pretty content with the dreams that I've had. I don't really, I don't think I yearn for anything else um, from my dreams with Max. I, yeah, I can't imagine. Like I really, to me, the dream of him running around in the field just makes so much sense to me that like I can't imagine having any other dreams that would make more sense to me I don't think I'd want to relive any of the necessarily the experiences that we've had I just want to know that he lived a happy life 
and I think I've gotten that already. So there isn't anything that I would necessarily want to dream about, I guess. I see. Okay, yeah. So the dreams you've had, you cannot make them. You don't want anything more than what they are. So you just want another dream of him playing in the grass. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, if if I continue having those dreams, those would be great. <laughs> That's amazing. And you know, what I've learned uh doing this podcast and hearing from Joshua Black and others um experts in the field is that, you know, it's good to remember. It's good to share those memories, relive those memories, you know, whether you're walking and you see another dog play and, you know, don't be so, I guess, judgmental on yourself about being sad or remembering and stuff like that. Cause that's how we do honor, um, those that have passed away and, uh, those that we loved and continue to love. So thank you with that, Dr. Malvina Skorska for coming on the program. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed talking about my research and also my dream experiences. They're very meaningful for me. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, again, we honor that and cherish that as well. Um, so we'll finish up here. Uh, please check out our platform at griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic. If you have any, if you have Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams Facebook group. Check us out on Instagram and Twitter at Grief Dreams. This podcast can be found on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, Overcast, and many other podcasting platforms. Uh, if you are interested in being a guest on our podcast, please email us your story and why you would like to share at griefdreamspodcast at gmail.com. And just before we wrap up, uh, Melvina, is there any place where people can find your research? Oh, that's a great question. Right now I'm working on building my own website, so that's not up yet. Uh, if you Google me, Google my name, you could find lots of my research and uh, pages to our lab page, which contain our, like a list of our research and our general research. And also, um, I think if you have ResearchGate, which is a common platform used by researchers to share their uh, research with other researchers, but also non-researchers, I guess, if they're interested, you can find me on there as well. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, your name will be up uh, along with uh, when we post the podcast so people can uh, Google that uh, as well. Uh, so yeah, we end the podcast with love and gratitude because again, we, you know, we love doing this. We love sharing and uh, experiences with everybody and we're very gracious about uh, having the opportunity to do so. So love and gratitude from us to you. I have introduced myself, you have introduced yourself. This is a very good conversation.